All right, tonight we're going to continue in the disciplines with a loud, loud microphone, so you pay attention. Um, we're starting the, cor- the corporate disciplines tonight. So far we've done the, the inward disciplines and the outward disciplines, which are all largely, com- completely, in fact, um, personal things you do in your own time. And so tonight we're kind of turning the corner and getting to the corporate disciplines. And then on Sunday, I'm going to preach on the discipline of solitude, which is going back to the personal disciplines. So just, just stay with me. It'll, it'll all be good. We're all going to work through this. Um, but, but tonight is confession and worship. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, we come to you now, and uh, my prayer tonight is the same prayer that I prayed this afternoon, that, that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with you in regards to um, our perspectives and our views of things we're sometimes called to that are uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that we would see um, not just the not just the blessing of these things, but the, just the, the necessity of them. That we would stop looking at biblical things as negotiable or optional. I pray that especially in the area of confession as we talk tonight. Lord, we are thankful for this time. I do pray that we would change as we put the disciplines into practice. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we'll begin the final section, not the final study, but the final section of of, uh, our study on the disciplines, and it's the corporate disciplines. And as I've already said, we're going to be talking about confession and worship. So before we dive into that, just a brief question for review. What is the goal of the disciplines? Yes, that was the most lackluster, lame, total transformation, completely change. Yeah, yes, total transformation, complete change. We don't just dabble in the disciplines. We don't, we don't approach the disciplines in a manner saying, yeah, I guess I could use a little more spiritual stuff, or I guess I could use, you know, up my game in the praying area, but I'm cool. No, we, we approach the disciplines in a very humble manner because we know that the goal of disciplines is total transformation. And there's some encouragement there because sometimes we have a tendency to forget that we ourselves can change, and sometimes we have a tendency to forget that other people can change, which is an important detail I want to bring up before we talk about confession because I think sometimes we don't like confession because we're hesitant to think we could actually change, and we don't want anyone holding us accountable, and I think we're sometimes hesitant to receive confession from other people because we are cynical, and we are futile in our thinking, and we think... um, People can't change. And so when we consider that the goal of the disciplines is total transformation of the person, we know that God doesn't call us to things that are impossible. He doesn't, he's not a cruel God who says, I want you guys to become more holy and then render us so that we cannot actually become more holy. His goal is our holiness. He cares about it more than we've ever cared about it. And so when we consider these disciplines, we consider how transformation takes place and how change takes place, I just want us to be really honest. So that's what I'm encouraging you in. I've prayed for you all this afternoon and this as well, that we'd be honest. So confession. When it comes to confession of our sins, what are some things that get in the way? Pride. Fear of what? Judgment? Yep. 
shame about what you've done. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes if you're still steeped in the sin and no one's caught you in it, you don't care. You will continue until you're caught. Then your brother will exercise some Matthew 18 on you. It'll get good. Yeah. You're not willing to give up whatever sinful thing it is that you're practicing and holding on to. Not ready for repentance. What else gets in the way of confession? Yeah. Yeah. If you're a sinner and you look around and you can say, well, look at all those other sinners. Why would I confess my sins to those people? Um, one thing I thought it was just a lack of trust, just sort of, um, well, show of hands. Has anyone in here ever confessed a sin to someone and it kind of backfired on you? Okay, yeah, at least half the room. Yeah, and that can make us timid. Um, there can be a lack of accountability. Sometimes you can confess your sins to people and they never talk to you about it again, which makes you say, um, are you going to hold me accountable? Are you ashamed of me to such a degree you don't want to talk anymore about what I confessed? Um, so there, there's a number of things. And so as we consider confession tonight, <clears throat> I just want to give the reminder that it's a discipline. Like all the other disciplines, it's pushing you beyond what you naturally want to do or what you're naturally capable of doing. Confession is something you have to work at. And like the other disciplines, it'll take time for, for it to sometimes come to fruition, although there is fruit in the immediate confession of a sin. So um, I want to talk about these dynamics that make it difficult. So turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to read starting in verse 19. I was going over some of these notes with Ben, and he, was, he said, I don't understand the John 20 reference. I was like, what are you talking about? You don't understand it. You're the pastor. You should understand it more than everyone. And, and, it, and I, I just, it says, on the evening that, on that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were from fear of Jews. That's all I had written in the notes. I hadn't written to keep reading. He's like, I am not seeing the connection between confession and that. And, uh, and so, um, to clarify, we're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to read through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Now, this is after the resurrection, which is obviously after the crucifixion, in case you weren't paying attention. Uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this is a pretty significant moment, right? All of those who were your followers, who were mourning because they thought that you were dead, now realize you're alive, and you are appearing to them in a state where they can actually see that you have a body and that there are, there are scars from what they saw you experienced, and now Jesus is about to say something to them. So this is sort of that significant moment where I think everyone's going to be paying careful attention. He says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, 
he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does this reveal about God's design for the confession of sins? All you have to do is confess. That's good. Confess and repent. There is a difference between confession and repentance, just so you know. Have you ever met those people who are really good at confessing? Man, they tell you everything, everything. And then when it comes to the repentance part, maybe we're a little hesitant, a little slow. They just want to confess the same things over and over. I've been that person, okay? So I'm not picking on anyone unfairly. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. On this here, um, what what is another dynamic that comes into play when it comes to the confession of sins? You're supposed to do it. We've got that. That's a great question. Do we have the power to forgive people? That's kind of what I'm getting at in this verse. The, the, The... uh-huh. Seems specific to them. What do you mean by that? Like only they're supposed to confess their sins and you don't have to? No, I mean about the forgiving. Forgiving? Okay. Yes. Yes, this does not mean you take the place of God. This does not mean that you take the place of Jesus. It does, however, mean that God has entrusted us with something. And it actually isn't only for this group. It means that God has given us some authority, responsibility, and privilege when it comes to confession and forgiveness. So when we look at this, exactly what Robin just said, it's not a matter of saying, all right, let's see how I feel about what you just said. Mm. <clears throat> you know, do the, the gladiator thing. That's not how it works. Um, it is all done in accordance with the gospel. And what that says is if you confess your sins, you are what? You're forgiven. So you have this authority as a, um, this is what we mean by the priesthood of believers. This means that I don't have to go, like this was something that um, the reformers, when they were fighting against some of the details that were going on in the Catholic Church, um, they were saying that I don't have to go to a particular guy to confess my sins to make sure that I am forgiven, but in fact, all believers have this priestly duty that's been entrusted to them by God to be able to forgive or withhold. Well, that's the part that would be easier if it was left out, right? Like, oh, cool, I can forgive, and I don't have to... No, it says you forgive or withhold. And so what we have to remember is that the premise in which this happens is the gospel. And this is why I want us to be honest about confession, because I don't generally trust people. I don't generally like spilling the beans with people. I don't generally like saying, hey, guess what I did wrong today? And go with that, because I think people 
are so prone to misuse that because people are sinners. But apparently God knew that, and God even took that into account. This is humbling, and this is convicting. He says, if you forgive the sins, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Why would you withhold forgiveness? Lack of repentance. Yeah. 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 If someone confesses to me, I have been doing meth. It's happened before. I've been doing meth. Not me doing meth, the confession. <laughs> it's been a hard year, but not that hard. Um, <clears throat> if someone confesses, I've been doing meth. And they confess it, and they aim to move in repentance. I get the privilege in that moment to say, in the name of Jesus, you're totally forgiven. Completely forgiven. Embrace that. Rejoice in that. Let's, let's, let's spend some time in prayer right now thanking God for dying on the cross for this very particular sin that you have in your life. That's a privilege. When I talk about the privilege of granting forgiveness, that's what I'm talking about. However, if they come to me and say, um, I'm doing meth, and I know it's wrong, and I feel bad about it, but I have no plans to quit. You look at that person, and you say, if you don't repent, you're not forgiven of that sin. Period. You don't get to rejoice in that moment because you have to hold them accountable. You have to do what it says here and withhold forgiveness. You're withholding it as one who has been entrusted with it. So there's a responsibility that we have here that I want us to all see because I think it's sort of the nice cultural thing for, to just say, it doesn't matter at all. Nothing matters. You're forgiven. And that is not true. Because there are times where it's appropriate to withhold forgiveness, and it's when someone is not repentant, because you know that sin will kill them. You know that sin is corrosive, and your aim for them is holiness, because that's God's aim for them in Christ. So when we talk about granting and withholding, we're talking about doing it completely on the basis of the gospel, not how you feel, not how superior you think you are, because you've never done meth, or whatever it might be. This is all on the premise of the gospel. And so this granting and withholding is something that is supposed to be happening all of the time within the body. Hopefully, more granting because there's true confession and true repentance because they go together. Now, the question about maybe this is an isolated incident, turn to Matthew 16. Because I thought that the first time I was like, man, because I, I used to actually look, I, I spent a, a fair amount of time at one point in my life um, uh, looking for a biblical rationale to say, you know what, I'll confess my sins to God, and that's it. Because I was more comfortable with that, because God's trustworthy, and um, he's true, and he's good, and he's not going to use it against me, he's not going to bring it up in an inopportune time, when there's a lot of people around, hey, how's your struggle with meth going? <laughs> Ooh, how about not now? And so I didn't... I didn't really want to make myself vulnerable in such a capacity. So I went looking for <laughs> scriptural premise to say, I, I think I can just confess my sins to God and stay between me and God, and then I walk with other people, and that's fine, but I don't want to confess my sin to him. 
And if I can find the rationale for that, I don't have to listen to anybody confess their sin to me either. I thought it was going to be a win-win. What I found was the opposite. Look at Matthew 16, 19. Start in 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on, his, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is going to Peter, common, fragile, goofy, over-speaking Peter, and, and he goes to him and says, I'm going to build my church upon you. And... I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, what, what do y'all think that means? To hold the keys of the kingdom. No, they didn't obey that anymore. If you think of it in terms of keys, you, you have the means by which people can get through the door to heaven, to eternity, and to union with God right now. It's not just this far off distant thing, it's union with God or separation from God right now. And you have these keys, and you've been entrusted. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what he's saying is, the way you move and the way you use these keys, the keys being the truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way you use them has an effect in heaven. What you bind is bound. What you loose is loosed. What you forgive is forgiven. What you withhold is withheld. That's significant. I want us to feel the responsibility of this discipline because there are too many who shrug the responsibility and will not shoot straight with people in their sin. When you tell someone, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you do, and it doesn't, you don't even have to change anything, he takes you as you are, he accepts you as you are, you know what, just do this right now, we'll be good, and you tell people that they can get into heaven and they can have access to God now and have access to God eternally, if you tell them they can do that without repenting, you're making a mockery of those keys that have been entrusted to your care. You're making a mockery of the one who has entrusted them to your care. Because you're saying, I will grant now and make you think now that you have something that the God of heaven says you don't have because you've rejected Christ. So when it comes to confession, there's a lot at play here. Do you have a question? Yes. Absolutely. And so if you, 
if you see someone doing that, if you see someone proclaiming a gospel that has nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with repentance of your sin, then you should bring that into correction. You should speak truth to them. You should be loving enough and caring enough about what's been entrusted to your care to, to move in that manner. Turn over to Matthew 18. It's just a couple pages over. It says in, in um, 18, start in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything um, about anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, it's not just an isolated incident. That's the whole church discipline passage saying, church, you need to figure out together as you're moving, is this person who has been caught in a sin genuinely repentant or not? That's a responsibility that we have, is discerning repentance in the confession of our brothers and sisters. There's nothing easy about that. There's nothing light about that. I think we'd all like to maybe say, well, um, if you say so, then that's fine. But that's not a genuine confession. If, If someone has said something and their actions prove otherwise, if they said, you know what, I confess this, I know that it's wrong, but they don't change their, their movement in obedience, that's not true confession. And God has designed it so that us fragile fellow sinners help hold each other accountable in that difficult, difficult work of discerning if there is true repentance that is owing to a true confession. Because if there's no true repentance, the confession is empty. Whether you're the one confessing or you're the one receiving the confession, God wants us to turn from our sin and accept Christ and move in holiness. And we have a responsibility as a discipline to help one another to do that wholeheartedly. I hope you're swallowing hard, because I know I am. Because I don't even like the concept, much less the application and the hard work of doing it. I struggle with the concept of saying, hey, you person, you fellow sinner, here's what I've done, this, this, and this. Oh, and here's what I've struggled with for years, this, this, and this. Oh, and here's how I failed in this area that I was supposed to be called to a high-level character, this, this, and this. But we're called to do that. Now, Biblically, there is wisdom in saying, anytime there's a conflict, there's a biblical rule keeping the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. And conflict is oftentimes the result of our sin. And so when we have sin, um, it's not always appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to grab an open mic and stand in front of everyone and say, here's the most terrible things I've ever done and just throw it at you and say, good luck. Because sometimes people just do that and it's this like cathartic exercise that has nothing to do with confession or repentance. Find someone you trust. It, this is appropriately done with someone you walk closely with. This is appropriately done with someone who you have forged a relationship with, who you've established trust, trust with. I have one person, aside from my wife, in my life, who I will confess everything to, who knows all my baggage, all my dirt, all, all my garbage. I have one person. And it took me a while to get that one person. But I have it. And I have found healing in that confession because that's what we're aiming at. I've found healing and growth and holiness in that confession. And it's good and it's a blessing, but the people who are involved in it have to be all in. The authority comes from proclamation of the gospel and accountability to live within its bounds. It does not come within how you feel if you're going to give someone a thumbs up or a thumbs down. In Luke 15, 20, the prodigal is seen greeted by his dad who ran to him. You don't have to turn there. 
But I just want you to consider, because most of us are familiar with that picture. A prodigal greeted by a dad who runs to him and lavishly blesses him when he returns. And what I want us to see is that um, the father's greatest delight in that moment is to forgive. He sees his son coming back. So the father's greatest delight was to see his son forgive. And in fact, he calls his light-filled creatures of heaven into celebration whenever one makes confession. Luke 15, 7, if you want to look it up later, Luke 15, 7 says that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. More joy than the 99 who have no need to repent. We do not have to work to make God willing to forgive. In fact, it is God who is working to make us willing to seek forgiveness, and we seek it through confession. And it takes honesty, and it takes vulnerability, and by God's design, sinners are supposed to do that with one another. Foster in his book says this, we know we're not alone in our sin, but that's one of the things that keeps us from it. We think, oh, this thing I'm struggling with, no one else has struggled with, or I'm alone in this, or I'm going to be ashamed. We know we're not alone in our sin. The fear and pride that cling to us like barnacles, that's a good example, cling to others also. We're sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. That's part of this binding and loosing. You're releasing the power that heals when people need healing from their sin. And he says this, and I want to ask you all about this. He says, our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. What does that mean in regards to confession? Our humanity is no longer denied, it is transformed. Yep, it's brought into the light. Something has to change. I've got a quote on my office wall that says, um, the sinner does not wallow in his sin even if he returns to it. He is raised by repentance. Get out of the mire. Don't wallow in it. Our humanity is no longer denied but transformed. If the goal of all of the disciplines, including the discipline of confession, is total transformation, then we deny the possibility of it and we deny our humanity when we don't confess. When we hide what needs to be confessed, we hide our humanity. We hide the fact that we're all sinners. And in doing that, we're withholding the possibility of transformation. Our humanity is no longer denied but transformed. The discipline of confession brings an end to pretense. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. Honesty leads to confession, and confession leads to change, which leads to worship. That's why confession and worship go together. They're both corporate disciplines, and you see one leading right into the other. I've often heard of worship defined as a human response to the divine initiative or a, a creative, of created, the creature's response to the creator's initiative or our response to God doing something. Worship. It's a response. We aren't the ones initiating. We're the ones responding because God's the one who's doing things. This is why confession and worship go together as corporate disciplines. By God's divine initiative, we're led by the Spirit to confess together. And as we grant that beautiful reality of forgiveness to one another, well, what other appropriate response is there but worshiping God? If you've ever had a time where you say to someone, hey, I'm struggling with the sin, 
and I confess it, and I want to move in repentance, and then you're able to meet, and over time you see movement and you see growth, and you're able to, to move away from the sin and toward holiness, you will find yourself worshiping with that person. And then when you come to corporate worship and you sing some of these words, they have deeper meaning. Like in Come Thou Fount, um, there's a um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. If you're not confessing your sin and you're not dealing with the reality that you need repentance, those words are empty. You would never say, I'm prone to be a sinner. I'm prone to walk away. God, you've shown me perfect love. And you know what I'm prone to in response? Thumbing my nose at it and going towards sin. That's what I'm prone to. So Lord, take my heart and seal it for your courts above. If you're confessing your sin, that time in corporate worship has a totally different meaning. If you're withholding confession, that time in corporate worship is empty and you might just be actually thinking more of the melody than the words that you're singing because you know it. That there's a thousand examples, more than that, of the songs we sing in corporate worship that are heightened and encouraged by those who confess together. So we grant this beautiful reality of forgiveness to one another and we respond in worship. Worship has everything to do with the presence of God. When we talk about the discipline of worship, and remember, this too is a discipline. The discipline of worship has to do with the presence of God. Turn to Isaiah 6. A lot of us are familiar with Isaiah's vision of the Lord, so we're just going to look at a couple details here. Worship has everything to do with the presence of God. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does the presence of God first evoke in Isaiah? Confession. The presence of God first evokes in Isaiah confession. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Not only that, all these other sinners I hang out with all day every day are people of unclean lips. And he's saying, I'm in the presence of God. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. I am unclean. My lips are unclean. And that's all I can say right now in this immediate response to the presence of God and the things are shaking and there's fire and it's crazy. God's presence evokes confession. Foster states in his book, worship is the practice of the presence of God. That's another way of saying what we said earlier, that worship is the, the um, created, created people's response to the creator. It's the, the human response to God's initiative. Worship is the practice of the presence of God. When we gather for corporate worship, I, I'm asking this for reflection, not to hear any answers. When we gather for corporate worship, are you expecting anything to happen? Genuinely. I want you to think about it. Don't answer out loud. When we gather for corporate worship, 
Are you expecting anything to happen? Is there anything that affects the way you prepare for a Wednesday night or for a Sunday morning that would indicate you actually expect something to happen? Is there any anticipation? Are you hoping for anything in particular? Are you open for something happening that you didn't expect because there's an anticipation of the infinite nature of God that could break forth in in some amazing way when his people gather? Is that how you view corporate worship? A striking feature of worship in the Bible is that people gathered in what we can call holy expectancy. Holy expectancy. Do we have that or are we so distracted before worship and so distracted during worship and so distracted after worship that holy expectancy seems like a foreign concept to us? Holy expectancy. Turn over to Acts 2, chapter 2. Again, I think a lot of us are familiar with this. But in Acts 2, this is one of the first gatherings of the church after the things that happen in Acts 1 and 2, it just says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is corporate worship. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Things happen when God's people gather. I already read in Matthew 20 that there were two or more, where two or three are gathered, God's there. God wants us to know that there's something important in our private movement with him in the internal and external disciplines of an individual. I'm going to preach about a lot of that on Sunday. But he also wants us to know there's something that happens in the corporate gathering that cannot happen when you're alone. Sunday, we're going to talk about there's things that happen when you're alone that cannot happen in the corporate gathering. They, they fuel one another, but you have to know when you gather... It's appropriate to have this holy expectancy. What is God going to do? He, he's going to pour out a spirit in some way. How's he going to do that? He answers prayers. How's he going to do that? He speaks through common, fragile preachers. What's he going to say? There's a holy expectancy that we should have <clears throat> when we gather. So I would just ask this. You guys, many of you have been members of this church for at least a year if not 12. Given what we've seen in the past, given what we know about how God has moved in this church body, what are some appropriate holy expectancies that we could have for the future as we gather together in corporate worship? Starting this Sunday, if holy expectancy has never been on your radar, knowing how God's moved with this people over the course of over a decade, what are some things we could expect? More baby dedications. That's a great answer. <clears throat> that our hearts would be open to the word. We've seen that. Conviction. There's never been a Sunday that I know of where, any, where everybody left and no one was convicted. I hope not. What else? By God's grace, some people come back. It's amazing. Marvelous. So if you know those things, 
how might that affect the way you prepare to go to corporate worship? Yeah, absolutely. When, when we come together, we know that there are healings that need to happen in particular ways, particularly marriages. I've seen a lot of marriages healed over the course of the years. And guess what? I've seen some that haven't been. And so we continue to pray. We continue to work. We continue to eagerly expect that God would do things that maybe we've even given up on. And that's in every area. So there should be an expectancy, a hopefulness as we gather. I wanted to take a minute to show you something in case you haven't seen it before. This is, I keep this in my Bible. It's our kids point resource. Do you know why we have this? Holy expectancy. We believe that even though kids are just so crazy distracted that maybe, just maybe, something can happen in corporate worship. I want you to know that I have four kids and my oldest is the only one who comes to corporate worship because she's of that age, that she comes because ours is... I think it's what, kindergarten, above kindergarten or something like that. I should know that, um, but I don't. We got forms that list it all out in detail. Um, um, the conversations that I can have with my daughter, who is here, are generally a lot easier and a lot more fruitful than the conversations I try to have with the one who wasn't in here. Because she wasn't sitting with us. She wasn't experiencing it. And even though the other one's only nine years old, I can ask a question and she knows the lingo of Hebrews. Whereas the other one doesn't yet because she hasn't been in here yet. And it makes me eager for her to be in here. And this little resource, we send it out every month to every parent. Every month to every parent in an email. We've got them sitting out there. Sometimes we hand them out. It's, it's all about holy expectancy. This little resource has preparation for corporate worship because we're expecting something could happen. And some of the details are Make a routine on a Sunday morning. Sometimes Sundays are harder because every other day has a routine and Sunday morning gets here and we're all shocked that we have to get dressed and be here by 10. Like every week it's a surprise. You're starting at 10 again? And we always walk in at 10.02 because those two minutes are impossible. I don't know why, but that's what happens. But make it a routine. Every other day has a routine. Have a Sunday morning routine. Um, bathroom breaks. Take your kid to the bathroom beforehand. That doesn't mean that no child will ever have to go to the bathroom during the service, but it means that some of them may not have to, and that's a win. So do a bathroom break. And then if your kid says, I got to go pee, you say, okay, go pee. Fine. No big deal. World's not ending because kids got to go to the bathroom. But maybe if you take them beforehand, it'll help them pay attention. Crazy, I know. Where is the off switch? Sometimes you know... Every time, you're going to know your kid better than anybody else. You're going to have to help them do things to get ready to listen, as you would in anything else. If, you go, if your kid is playing in the yard, if my son is in the sandbox, sand in his ears, sand in his hair, um, 
everywhere. He's playing with his trucks. He's got his dozers and his John Deere tractor, and he's doing his thing. And I walk out, and I say, hey, dude, I need you to feed the dog. And I walk away. The dog will never be fed because he did not hear what I said because I hadn't helped him to hear what I said because he was doing his thing with the sand and the trucks. But if I say, okay, hey, bud, come here. We're going to talk for a minute. Are you having fun? Good, great. Okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and in just a minute, what I need you to do is take two minutes to go into there, get the dog food, put it in the bowl. Okay, buddy? I need you to feed the dog. I I need to help him pay attention. I need to help him with his off switch, and you can do that on a Sunday morning. If you scream at your child up until you get to the front door, and then look at them and say, pay attention to the pastor and listen to Jesus. They're going to look at you like you're a crazy person because you are. <laughs> and then worship on the way to worship. We have a spot where if we're all coming together on a Sunday morning, which is rare, usually I come earlier, but um, the little auto place where that little tin guy is that, that he's made of mufflers or whatever, um, every time we get to that guy, we pray. And on the mornings I forget, you know what my kids do? They say, hey, you passed the guy, we're supposed to pray. And they remind me. And and I don't usually listen to, like, Guns N' Roses on the way to worship either. <laughs> Generally, you can select music that may be conducive. It's just little things. It's not crazy stuff. All things that pre- preparation for corporate worship. During corporate worship, there's notebooking. There's a bingo idea. There's a picture idea. There's a sticker chart. There's modeling ideas that you can help them during corporate worship. And then follow up to corporate worship. Life group connections, worship and song, sermon stuff, prayer, hanging something on the wall or the refrigerator, or he said, she said, I said, what was said, what were the words that you heard. There's things you can do to prepare for corporate worship, things you can do during corporate worship, and things you can do to follow up to corporate worship, and all of it has to do with holy expectancy and a high view of the discipline of worship. None of those things are going to be easy. I mean, they're kind of easy, but they're not going to happen without discipline. You have to have an intentionality about them to make the worship experience better. And the catch is that it's not, that's not just a resource to help the kids. Because the reality is that if a parent's not preparing for corporate worship or responding to corporate worship, it's not likely that you're going to lead your kid in that. So it's for both. Um, In Matthew 18, 20, go ahead and turn there. I already mentioned it. I got two more verses to go to. Matthew 18, 20. I read it earlier. I want to make sure you, you heard it. This is the church discipline section where you hold each other accountable. But that last verse in 1820, it says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The ESV had a note that I wanted to share with you that just says, Jesus affirms that he will be divinely present among his disciples as they seek unity in rendering decisions. Rendering decisions about forgiveness with which they've been entrusted which is rightly understood as an affirmation of God's omnipresence and therefore of deity. God's saying, I'm with you. When you gather, it's a time of worship. And I'm with you, and I help you in these things that I've entrusted to your care. Turn over to Hebrews 18. Hebrews doesn't have 18 chapters. Look, let's be honest. Y'all wouldn't have known that if we didn't spend the last... Years in Hebrews. Seriously, the whole room. 18? There's only 13. Somebody didn't read his Bible. (laughs) Yeah, go to Hebrews and just thumb around for a minute. 
Um, um, uh, 10. Sorry, 10. Hebrews 10, 24. No, thank goodness there's not 18 chapters, right? Uh, Hebrews, they'd probably be awesome. Um, Hebrews 18, 24 through 25 says this. And let uh, 20, good grief. Turn to Hebrews 10 and correct it in your notes so you don't keep saying the same blessed thing over and over. Hebrews 10, 24 says this. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why would Christians neglect to meet together? Messy. Hypocrites. <laughs> Jesus and me are cool. I don't need that. Time. Yeah, I don't like the people I go to church with, so I'm not going to go as often. Some people make that decision. I'm not saying that. I'm saying some people make that decision. Sermons are long. We're going to pretend you're just saying theoretically. Jerk. Just kidding. Pressing matters. Things that are more important. I can get this at home. Ooh, that's a big one. Total junk, but, but a good one. I don't think it's important. Okay, how about outside of America? Outside of America. What are some reasons people don't go to? Why would you neglect to meet together? Dangerous, persecution, oppression. That was more the setting in the Hebrews church. Maybe there's not a church around. But if there are believers, what should they not neglect to do? Meet together. It's important. There's a pig in my kitchen. You know, that's a big one. That's, it's, uh, I want to hear that story. <laughs> There's a pig. You can tell people from the field are here when someone says, there's a pig in my kitchen. <laughs> An excuse you've undoubtedly heard. What did you say? True? It doesn't have to be some third world setting. It could be the Ott's kitchen with their pig. Good point. Um, good grief. How do I recover from that? William Sperry. William Sperry states, worship is a deliberate and disciplined adventure into reality. If we view worship as like get away from reality time, we're viewing it completely wrong. And I want you all to know, I've been guilty of that at times in my life. I used to lead worship a lot. Some of you all don't know that. I actually led worship in song for the better part of a decade here for most of the Sundays. And I used to, and I did that at the church I was, I was at before here. And I loved getting everything ready and going. And it, to me, for a season, I loved gathering and getting all the music together and getting with the fellow musicians and know we were singing true things about God to God with his people. And there was something about that that was a total escape from all the junk in life. And I enjoyed it. And I would show up ready for some escapism. Because I could just throw down and play guitar, play piano, and sing at the, my best ability. And I knew it was good that God would be pleased to sing true things. And I knew it was good when people gathered. And I knew those things were, were all great. But man, there was this thing that was like, man, I get to escape from reality for an hour a week. 
I get to escape. And that is a total wrong view of worship. Worship is a deliberate and a disciplined adventure into reality. I've always appreciated how Brad Cardwell describes it. He's our non-staff elder. And he works his tail off doing a ton of stuff. And every week, sometimes I won't even talk to him between Sunday morning corporate worship sometimes. And every time I see him, I'm kind of like, hey, man, how you doing? Because I'm sort of expecting you've been working hard, and now you've got to drag your tail up in here and be an elder in front of all these people and be ready to answer any questions and stuff. And, man, Brad Cardwell's approach is, he's, I've heard him say it multiple times, I cannot wait for it each week. It's the most real time I have in life. It's the most real hour, hour and a half, two hours I spend every week. That's, that, I've heard him say it multiple times. I can't wait for it. It's the most real time I have in life. Worship is an experience of reality. You are not escaping. It is a moment. It's deep truth. And it's bringing all of reality into line with the creator's purpose for it. It's an experience of reality, not an escape. The last scripture is Isaiah 6. You've already been there, but turn back to it. Isaiah 6. Back to the vision. Look at verse 8. So we already know that God showed up, and the immediate thing that God evoked from Isaiah was a confession. And then in 8 it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And then God gives him direction on where to go and what to say. Notice how God's presence brought about confession for Isaiah. And confession led to worship, which led to obedience. Foster again in his book notes, Just as worship begins in this holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. Just as worship begins in this holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. If worship doesn't propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. It may have been escapism. It may have been something just enjoyable. Maybe it was just nostalgic. But if worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship of God. Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate an escape from the pressing needs of modern life. So you can know if you're serious about worship, if in fact you're serious about obedience. Because no one is serious about obedience if they're not serious about confession and repentance and worship together, and then we go and do, as, it, as we've been told by God. So together we confess, and together we worship, and together we obey, and it is a discipline that is not always easy, and we have to be really honest about the things that would hinder us from, from taking part in these disciplines. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this time. Pray that you would guide us into obedience as we respond. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.